Okay, the first thing, of course, is those are all prokaryotic cells. Okay, that's your first clue. If it has peptidoglycan in the cell wall, then it's a bacterium. If it has something else in the cell wall, it's an archaean. If it lives in extreme environments, it's an archaean. If, it, you know, if it's a human pathogen, it's going to be a bacteria. Those are some of the things you can, uh, and you can look through the, the other differences that were on the, on the PowerPoint. So is, is the first of the thing then is, is a, is a cell, is it prokaryotic or eukaryotic cell? If it's prokaryotic, okay, we're, you know, we know where it's going. It's one of those two groups. If it's a eukaryotic cell, things are a little more, um, you have a few more choices. Um, if it's a eukaryotic cell, we have four kingdoms that we deal with. Protista, strong. You guys just go home. Okay, uh, Protista. Then there are there's plant, which actually spelled like that. Boy, that's not the last one. Uh, <clears throat> fungi, and then animals. Now, we're going to go through each of these phylums, and what we want you to be able to do is understand why organisms are put into one of these phylums and not in a different one, okay? And then, how are they organized within that phylum? Uh, in other words, you know, how do we organize, for instance, when we get to, to animals, we're going to talk about invertebrates and vertebrates, and we'll look at the different phyla that are within the animals. So we'll look at uh, things like... Uh, <clears throat> sponges and jellyfish and uh, um, cartilaginous fish and bony fish and you know amphibians, reptiles, mammals, you know, all that kind of stuff. All right, uh, we won't be in nearly as much detail in these others. Now, <clears throat> proteins are probably the uh, how should I put it the least um, the least well organized of the groups, and the problem is that. <clears throat> If um, everybody in here is pretty much comfortable with what an animal is, okay, I mean, if you see something running around out there, you think, okay, that's an animal. It's not too hard to figure that out. Generally, we you know what plants are, okay, and fungi, you know, maybe a little less comfortable with that, but generally pretty comfortable with fungi. Um, <clears throat> Proteins are organisms that are sort of like animals, but not really. And sort of like plants, but no, no, not really quite plants. And it's sort of like fungi. Um, and we used to group them. We used to call them uh, animal-like proteins and plant-like proteins and fungus-like proteins. And in fact, we'll do some of that in here. But of course, they've been, with all the DNA information now, they've been completely reorganized into something that makes absolutely no sense to anybody, except the people who deal with the DNA, okay? So that's what we're gonna look, we're gonna look at. So, well, uh, so the first thing, of course, is there are eukaryotic cells. That, of course, doesn't tell you which of these it's in, because they're all gonna be eukaryotic cells. Um, and they, they have the ribos larger ribosomes than bacteria did. Uh, generally, more than one chromosome, okay? Remember uh, when we were in the bacteria in the archaea, they had one chromosome, uh, usually circular. Uh, generally speaking, in eukaryotic cells, you have multiple chromosomes, and they're not circular. They're usually linear, okay, so long strands. And we have, uh, in eukaryotes, we have a whole class of unique proteins that are associated with the DNA, and you would have looked at those last semester, or you would have mentioned them, the histones, that the DNA wrapped around inside the nucleus. Okay, you don't find that in, in the prokaryotic organisms. It's only found in eukaryotes. Okay, so in this sense, they're uh, unlike the prokaryotes, but it doesn't tell you much about. Okay, well, why proteins and not animals? Okay, so we need to take a look at that. Oh, we got some more things. Uh, they have a cytoskeleton. Uh, they have internal organelles, like chloroplasts, mitochondria. They reproduce by mitosis and meiosis, okay, instead of binary fission, like we talked about with bacteria. So clearly very different uh, from the bacteria. Uh, 
And we have uh, a section in here on uh, how it is believed that uh, some of the organelles arose from organisms that were probably prokaryotic to begin with. And it's called endosymbiosis. In other words, uh, here what we would have had is a common ancestor, which you can see up there in this corner, um, and a photosynthetic bacterium and, or an, an aerobic bacterium uh, merged together uh, to form a cell that had individual little compartments um, because they came from originally from other organisms. And, and this is thought to be how eukaryotic organisms arose. Um, in fact, with mitochondria and chloroplasts, if you remember those from last semester, they have their own DNA. Your nucleus does not know how to make a new mitochondria. If I took one of your cells and we killed all the mitochondria in it, it'd be out of luck. It has, does not have the information in the uh, nucleus to make a new mitochondria. It has some information needed to do it, but it didn't have all of it. The mitochondria had some of the DNA information that is required to make a new mitochondria. Mitochondria had two membranes around them, a double membrane. Remember the one, outer one and then the inner one that was all wiggly and you know, inside, all right? Uh, that is consistent with something having been engulfed and then becoming part of the cell. Chloroplasts are the same. They have their own DNA, they have a double membrane. And so it's thought that one time these were free living prokaryotic organisms that were engulfed by another cell. Um, but instead of being broken down and eaten, killed, uh, they became part of the cell. And this would have taken a very long time for the, this arrangement to work out. Um, but now they are uh, a necessary part of our cells. Well, mitochondria are. Uh, mitochondria can't live without you, at least the ones in your cells, and your cells can't survive without mitochondria. And so you have this symbiotic relationship. And since the mitochondria are inside the cell, it's called endosymbiosis, endo meaning inside. Okay? Um, and the same is thought to be what happened with uh, those organisms that have chloroplasts, that that was also a free-living prokaryote that has, over time, you know, it got inside this nice, comfortable environment. Somebody's taking care of homeostasis for you. You don't have to mess with all of that. Uh, you don't have to worry about osmotic pressures. Um, you know, as long as you can survive in there, you know, and then, of course, these cells, you remember from aerobic respiration, where is almost all of the ATP made? Well, it's almost all made in the mitochondria. We'd be, we'd be in trouble without them. Okay? So this is uh, the theory as to how this has arisen. Okay. Now, so what is characteristic of proteins themselves? Well, first thing is, almost all of them are unicellular. Okay, so animals are not unicellular. They're multicellular. Fungi are multicellular. Plants are multicellular. Proteins are unicellular, at least mostly. And those that aren't unicellular really don't have a lot of significant organization and cooperation between the cells. They just kind of all hang together. Uh, and so that's one of the things that's unique to this group. So if it says that it's unicellular and you know that it's eukaryote, this is where it goes. No questions asked. Now, also have metabolic diversity because some are heterotrophic. That means they eat other living things, okay, like us. Animal-like, okay? They have to go find something and eat it. That's what they do. Whether it's plant, animal, fungal, doesn't matter, bacteria, but they have to find something else that's alive and eat it, okay? There are some that are autotrophic. That means they do photosynthesis. There's a whole lot of algae out there that do photosynthesis. Okay. A lot like plants, but not really because they're single-celled. Okay. And then we have some that are saprobes, which means they 
they basically break down dead materials that are in the environment, uh, much like fungi do. But they're unicellular, so they're not fungi. They don't have the growth characteristics of fungi, so they're all placed into this group. This is the, you know, uh, you ever had to uh, file a bunch of stuff or organize it into folders? And there's all the things that fit very nicely into a particular category. And then you end up with this pile that's almost as big as the original pile when you're done of stuff that doesn't really fit any of the categories that you've made up. And so you make up a folder that's called miscellaneous. And you throw everything in there that doesn't fit in any of the other categories. Well, that's kind of the protease. They're the miscellaneous phylum or kingdom of the eukaryotes. It's where we put everything that's not clearly an animal, it's not clearly a plant, it's not clearly a fungus, goes here. Okay. Now, they also have uh, what they, different ways of moving, cytoplasmic streaming. Well, you have cells that do that too. You have macrophages right now that are kind of like amoebas that are squirming all through you right now, this very moment, looking for bacteria and viruses and cell debris, clean up stuff, okay? But they're there, all through your tissues, they're moving around right now by a cytoplasmic stream. Uh, cilia, little tiny short things. We don't have cells with cilia in us. Well, that's not true. We do, uh, you do in your uh, uh, respiratory tract. You have little cilia that keep the, the mucus from going down into your lungs and push it back up which you don't ever notice until you have a cold and you produce excess mucus or watery mucus, and then you cough to get it out because the little cilia can't get it out fast enough. Okay, but that, that's what they, they, they're, they're doing. Um, flagellum, well, yeah, sperm cells have a flagellum. That's the only <laughs> cell in the animals that does, but it, they have a flagellum. We have organisms here with a flagellum, and then we have some that don't have any means of motion at all. We'll look at that group, and they're mostly all parasites. They don't, they don't have. They, they let somebody else move them around, pretty much. Okay. Uh, cell walls. Okay, remember bacteria had cell walls. Peptidoglycan cell walls, or if you're an archaean, it was different. Well, some proteins have cell walls. Some don't, and some have hard outer shells that actually, when they die, collect on the bottom of the, of the, the ocean or a lake, mostly the oceans. Um, so they, you can see this, it's a very messy group. Okay. Unicellular is probably the primary thing that separates them from everybody else, and even there, some of them are not unicellular. No, very large group. Uh, most of them are aquatic because they're single cells. They, have, they need to be in a moist environment for the majority. And, and we'll pretty much, uh, when, I, when we go through, I'm going to show you the official classification for them. Uh, you'll see that in your lab, too. Uh, but uh, we're going to look at them as plant-like, animal-like, and fungus-like. Because that makes more sense to, at, at this level. This is not a, a taxonomy class. Okay. So this is the uh, the way that they're organized now. Uh, look at an evolutionary tree here. Prokaryotic ancestor. And you'll notice that normally you expect to have a single tree going up. But with the turkeys, there's this group, which isn't related to other groups very well. Uh, this group, this group. You have five, five different, very different groups of organisms that are very loosely related to each other. A very, very messy way of doing things, but it's the best we've been able to do. Now, why are they grouped like that? That's all based on DNA data that, that places. Bacillids and the diplomonads together. Now, I don't expect you to learn those names. I don't, that's not really really useful. Some of these you may have heard of before, uh, like brown algae and uh, 
and over here are green algae and red algae. Those are those are common terms. Radial areas, but again, we'll, we'll go, we're going to work through these. So we're going to start off with those that are heterotrophic. That means they're eating somebody else. Okay, that should be familiar to you, uh, comfortable. That's what we do. We have to eat something else. It's alive. Or was alive. All right. So we uh, take the, this and we uh, divide them into really two groups. We have the protozoans first. Protozoans is that kind of like animals, little animals. They actually move around. They feed on other living things. And they're broken into groups based on how they move. <coughs> you know, what's their method of motion? So let me... Okay, this is typical amoeboid motion. Those long things that stick out are what we refer to as uh, uh, pseudopodia, false feet. And you can see the cytoplasm inside is stringing. It's literally pushing itself out into those, which expands them, and then it's pulling it out of the ones behind so that they get pulled back along with this. Um, this is a the typical movement of a uh, uh, organism in this group. Now I'm going to go back and get another one here. Um, here's another look at a different one. All right, now, it's easiest to see in an amoeba because there's nothing to block that. And you can easily see the cytoplasm streaming inside. Okay, that's what your macrophages are doing and some of your white blood cells uh, inside of us. But we don't generally have very many cells that move like this. Now, it turns out that not all of these guys look like that. Uh, so if I go back to this here, you know, radiolarians are foraminiferous. Uh, but what you'll notice with both of these groups is that these have external, have, have skeleton-like arrangements. Now, these very elaborate calcium carbonate skeletons are being produced by a single cell, not a whole big animal with a brain or anything like that. This is a single cell that produces these. The radiolarians uh, are called that because they have spikes that stick out and their cytoplasm flows out along those spikes and then it flows back in. And what they do is flows out there, it captures food and then it drags it back down to the main part of the cell. And they have this kind of appearance of a sunburst appearance, which is where the name radiolarian came from, okay? Um, these are, are pretty common. The foraminiferans are like this. Now this would be completely covered with cytoplasm which actually streams over the surface. So this streaming motion of the, of the cytoplasm is a, a large part of why we put these guys uh, together. Okay, so these are protease, which means they're unicellular. They are heterotrophic. They have cyto, they move by means of cytoplasmic streaming. Sort of like the blob, if anybody remembers that old movie. Okay. Well, there's been more than one of them, but the original one is pretty awful. Uh, 
Well, I don't know I should say. It was Steve McQueen, one of his first movies. I mean, it's that long ago. Uh, actually, it was kind of funny, in a way, because they were unable to kill it. It came from outer space. That was just not in the 50s. That was Kirby. Yeah. yeah. And they couldn't kill it, no matter what they did. What they found was they could freeze it and it stopped it. It made it cold, and it just stopped it would absorb anything they got close to people, animals, you know. Um, and so they said, the Air Force said, all right, we're going to put it somewhere where we never have to worry about it thawing out, and they dropped it into the Arctic by parachute. <laughs> okay, so now we have uh, warming in the Arctic, so who knows what, what's out there. It's kind of, uh, you know, so that movie has to come back now. The new blob, you know, with the Arctic warming, you know, it's going to have to, something's going to have to make another one. All right, so these are amoeboid-type motion, protozoans. Now, most uh, of the amoebas have no cell walls, although some do. Some uh, construct a little uh, a thing around them. Um, again, asexual reproduction primarily for amoebas with not been known to do sexual, they don't exchange DNA as far as we can tell. Uh, you can find them in all kinds of places, freshwater, salt, salt water, find them in uh, moist soil. Um, a few, most of these are free living, meaning they just go out there and they just eat stuff. There are a few that are parasitic. A couple that cause disease are parasitic amoebas. Okay, so this one you may occasionally hear about. This is uh, these first two here, but Naglaria is a big one. Uh, in fact, there was uh, we don't get many cases in the United States in a year, maybe three or four in a year. Uh, they're very rare. Uh, there, I just saw some online about some in, in Pakistan. Somebody died from this. What this is an amoeba that you can see is called the brain-eating amoeba which is exactly what it does. Uh, it lives in very warm water, and uh, if it gets, if that water, if there's an impact that pushes that water up into the nose, there's the possibility that this amoeba can move through the openings in the skull where the, the uh, olfactory nerves come down so that you can smell stuff. And it will get into the brain, and it starts feeding on neurons in the there is really no specific cure. Generally, it's been fatal for almost everybody that's had it. There's been one person, they did. They tried some treatments, and there's been one person that survived, that I know about, that I've heard about. Uh, but basically, uh, it damages the brain to the point that you die. Okay. So that's one to watch out for. Um, around here in Virginia, you probably have very little to worry about. Uh, water here doesn't get that warm. Okay. Uh, it's more common in, out in Arizona. Uh, that's where there have been a few cases, and then there was one in South Carolina last year. Uh, that was the one who survived. So, uh, they, they can be parasites. Now, Endomoeba histolytica is what causes what is known as amoebic dysentery. Basically, it gets into your digestive tract. It uh, makes open sores in the colon, which then leads to uh, diarrhea spread from contaminated food or water. Um, again, uh, very rare in the United States. Uh, whatever you may think about the way our food is handled, for the most part, it's relatively uh, sanitized. Really, not, compared to other parts of the world, it's pretty good, okay? Now, in other parts of the world, it is very common that they use human feces as fertilizer because they don't have anything. They, aren't, they can't afford to go buy chemical fertilizers. They use everything they've got, okay? So, if somebody has this, then this, there'll be little cysts in there. It gets on the food. If it's not washed properly, then somebody can ingest it, and then they get the organism. It's very treatable. 
uh, very, very treatable. So some places, uh, when I was in Saudi Arabia, they, they go to a lunch in their little uh, dining facility. Um, they have salads, but that's where your biggest risk is, is from vegetables. And so the, the lettuce always tasted kind of strange. And that was because they washed it in bleach before they then rinsed it before you ate it. So to make sure that that wasn't there. So you get what you get. Okay. Uh, so at any rate, so the amoeboid type can be parasitic. That's not common, but the, these, these are a couple of ones. Uh, the, the brain eating one is uh, one to watch out for. And you remember that people buy these little, what they call them, neti pots that you push the water up in one nostril and then come down the other, out the other one. Uh, make sure if you ever use any of those, make sure you're using sterile water. Because there were a couple of cases uh, that occurred from people using that. So water sterile, you know, not a problem. Okay, so uh, this is just a, uh, this from the CDC shows you what it does. Uh, Naglaria enters through the uh, uh, olfactory epithelium. Meningoencephalitis, in other words, brain uh, infection. Okay. Generally fatal, unless, uh, well, generally fatal. Uh, these other two are, uh, this is a couple of others here. These are uh, primarily, uh, well, one of them is a digestive tract. Okay, radiolarians and foraminiferans. Um, these are all marine plankton. They make either silica or calcium carbonate outer shells. I saw you some, some pictures uh, of some here too. Um, they, are, they move by means of cytoplasmic streaming. They capture prey. They're, these are so nu numerous that their skeletons accumulate uh, in sediment. And the, the White Cliffs of Dover, which is what that picture is of in England, those are chalk deposits from foraminiferans. Those are, that rock is just packed full of foraminiferans. That's where the calcium carbonate comes from, which is what basically what chalk is. And it's not the only place in the world where it's found. It's just obvious there because it, it stands out. Okay, second group that fits into these protozoans are flagellated protozoans. Okay, so these are the parasabolids and the diplomonads. Again, don't worry about the name. Uh, the, the first group are anaerobic organisms because they don't have any mitochondria. That's pretty rare in a eukaryotic organism. This is a eukaryotic organism with no mitochondria. So that means they uh, make very little ATP. They make just enough to survive. Okay, so they're not nearly as active. Now, the cometoplastids, uh, they do have mitochondria, and these are the two that we will look at uh, primarily. Dinoflagellates, because those are important to us, and euglenoids, because you've probably seen euglena in the lab sometime or other. Okay. okay, now these are the parasabolids. Remember I mentioned no, uh, no mitochondria? These are symbi symbiotic organisms. Okay, uh, what they do is <clears throat> they live in the intestinal tracts of termites and wood roaches, which we have lots of around here, close. Okay. Wood roaches are the great big guys that come in from outside. Um, they're actually quite harmless. Uh, they just don't look it, but they're, they're very harmless. Uh, termites are not so harmless because they want to eat your house away out from under you uh, if given the opportunity. Now, why are they there? Well, it turns out the termites and wood roaches both, while they eat wood, nibble on wood, they cannot digest cellulose. Like all animals, they are unable to digest cellulose. So basically they would starve. Okay. But they can have these as symbiotic organisms I'll show you, there's a picture of the symbiote. This is a termite here. Uh, that are able by anaerobically to break down cellulose, and then they share the sugars that they produce by breaking down cellulose with the termite or, or the wood roach. 
And so it's a symbiotic relationship between them. And then, of course, there would be a lot of them in the digestive tract. Okay, so this is a taken from the intestinal tract of a termite. And you can see all these little symbionts, you can see they're flagellic as they move around. And these guys are just swarming around inside the digestive tract, breaking down cellulose and, and keeping the, uh, the termites and the wood roaches alive. Okay. By breaking down those sugars, I think their hosts uh, shares some ATP with them since they don't have mitochondria of their own. They're, they're pretty interesting little critters. If you take a termite and you uh, medicate them so with something that kills these, then they will starve to death. They can eat all the wood they want and they'll starve to death because they can't digest the cellulose. A lot of research done around here on termites, well, particularly over at ODU. I know they I see a lot of papers come out of ODU every year about termites. It's a it's an issue here, from here on south. Uh, until I moved here, I always lived in places where termites uh, were just something you read about in stories. You know, in Maine, there are no termites. It's darn cold for them to survive the winters. Uh, in Alaska, no termites. Lots of other critters you don't like, but okay. So anyhow, that's what they look like. And this is nice because you can see the flagellate pretty clearly on in this. Okay. Now, one of these is also a human parasite. <clears throat> and this is Trichomonas vaginalis. Uh, it is the most common protozoan infection in, uh, in industrialized nations. And as you might guess, it lives on the epithelial lining of the vagina. Um, uh, and it can also live in the male reproductive tract. Um, basically, it uh, sucks out nutrients from the cells and then breaks them down anaerobically. Okay. Um, it's, again, relatively easily treated. This is what it looks like here. I mean, over here, you can see a bunch of them up against those epithelial cells. And what they're doing is extracting nutrients out of those cells, which, of course, irritates the lining of the vagina or the male reproductive tract to no end. Okay, so, uh, and again, easily treated. Okay, diplomonads. Now, this one, um, okay, so remember back where we were here when we started. Okay, diplomonads and parasabolids have, uh, or parabasalids have no so here's another one, Giardia, Lamblia. This is an intestinal parasite, um, fairly common uh, in, the, in the U.S. Uh, this is why you don't drink water without treating it, no matter how clear a stream may look. Uh, it often has the cyst stage of it inside in the water. It comes out, it comes through the feces of an animal that's infected. Um, it uh, if you drink it, then it gets into your intestinal tract. They start to develop, and you get a bunch of these little guys in your intestinal tract. And you uh, it's a very nasty uh, disorder. It's not fatal or anything. It's just miserable. And if you're out backpacking or camping when you get it, this is not something you want. It has lots of diarrhea. It produces gases. Uh, it's just a mess. Okay, it takes about 10 days to get rid of it. It is treatable, and you get rid of it faster, obviously. Uh, and it can get into community water supplies. That's pretty rare, but it has been known to happen. It spreads very easily uh, in that respect. Again, you can see the flagellae on it. And it basically is feeding on the cells lining the digestive tract. All right, now, these are the guys that uh, have mitochondria. Uh, I, I picked out the ones that are of some significance, but you can see the long flagella in the diagram. Uh, the first group are trypanosomes. Uh, I think you looked at this in lab. 
you've had your lab on proteins already, you should have. Um, and um, these, these are uh, our blood parasites. Okay, and so what you're seeing up there is a red blood cell and, uh, and one of the trypanosomes. This is brucei, right here. Uh, this is what the, a blood smear looks like. And if you can imagine how tiny a part of the person's blood that smear is made from, you can get an idea of the millions of parasites that they have in their blood. This causes African sleeping sickness. Uh, it is a, a major problem still. It's uh, now it's transferred by the TT fly. So anywhere in Africa where the TT fly is, then this occurs. Okay, and it's not just in humans, it can also occur in other animals. It's called sleeping sickness uh, because eventually, after you've had it long enough, it will migrate into the neural system and then people get very lethargic and then they die. It's, it's, it's always fatal uh, unless treated. Now, it is treatable. One of the problems when you treat a protozoan disease is that you can get it again. It's not like bacteria where you develop immunity to most bacteria or in, in many viruses. You do not develop any immunity to proteins. And so you can go out there, get bitten by TT fly, and get it all over again. Okay. Uh, that's obviously a problem. Uh, there's also Trypanosoma cruzi is found in the, uh, in the Americas. Um, let's see if I can find a picture of it. It's, uh, it it's uh, mostly in Central South America, although there have been reports in Southern United States of, of these. They're bugs about this long. They're called kissing bugs, and they will climb on you at night while you're asleep, and they want to find a, a place where the skin is thin, so they tend to bite around the mouth, hence the name kissing bugs, and they carry this parasite. Now, this parasite is very different some people have almost no symptoms from it. Other people, it's been fatal, and there's no way to predict ahead of time what's going to happen. Uh, it is thought that Darwin had this disease, although nobody knows for sure because of some of the symptoms he exhibited later in his life that he may have. He did talk about the, the bugs because uh, he had seen them. Let's see if I can get a, an image of one of those for you. Okay, so this is what they look like. They're fairly large. And there are true bugs. When we get to the insects, you know, people, most people refer to all the insects as bugs, but that's, of course, inappropriate. But there is a group of them that are called true bugs, and they all have a proboscis, which they stick into something, and they suck the juices out, whether it's plants or animals or whatever. And, and that's what these do. Um, and so there are... Uh, th th that's what they, they look like. So that would climb up on you at night while you're asleep, and it would bite you. It would stick a little proboscis in up around here somewhere and take blood. That's what they do. Pardon? Well, those are different. Those are, uh, those are not the disease carrying. What you are seeing is, uh, I find room to guess, you are seeing here. I have I've seen them also. Look at the coal. Pretty big. What yes. you're seeing are these guys. Yeah. Like, like, like this? Yep. Yeah. Uh, this is, well, that's not the best picture, but you can see this crown like thing on it. huge Yeah, they, they get fairly large. Uh, here's a better picture of one here. Now, this is its proboscis. It carries like this, and when it, it's called an assassin bug because what it does is it roams around, finds other insects, and stabs them with that thing and sucks them all the juices out. That's what it does. Hence, it's called an assassin bug. For the most part, they are good to have around your yard because they're eating lots of other bugs. Okay. Um, you know, you take your chance. You know, with these. But they, they will... Uh, I've been told not to try to handle them because they will try to stab you and they, they can actually penetrate the skin. You're not going to get a disease from them, though, as far as I know. 
when you see one, it really gets your attention. Okay, and then the last in this group is Leishmanian. That's, this is an open sore. This is virtually unknown in the United States, not so much now, uh, before the Gulf War. This is, uh, is transmitted by sand flies. Okay, so folks that went to the desert in, in Arabia, okay, Kuwait, Iraq, Afghanistan, are bitten by these, by these flies frequently. And they can easily acquire Leishmania, or Leishmaniasis is what the disease is called. Uh, you get these open sores that can occur. Again, easily treated, but no immunity until you can get it again. Now, uh, it has never, until recent times, it, had, it was known in Mexico and a little bit in the desert areas of Mexico. These have now, the flies that carry this, have now been found in southern Texas. So we might think that a half a degree warming in average temperature, eh, big deal, half a degree, who cares? But a half a degree means they can move a little farther north because they can survive. That's, that's cold. That's why the fire ants are all the way up here now, partly. The thing that stops them is cold. But fire ants are here on the peninsula now. Not a lot of them, but they have been found here. Uh, so be careful. <laughs> some red ants, uh, large red ants, be, be a little careful of them. They're nasty. I mean, they're just protecting themselves. I mean, that's what they're doing. It's, it's not like they're looking for you and saying, oh, I'm going to get you, and, uh, you know, take her down. You know, they just, they just feel threatened, and they, they bite and sting. That's what they do. Kind of like that guy called Animals just do what they do. Sometimes we get in the way. Okay. All right. So those are all flagellated organisms. Um, now I have a picture of you, Lena. I can show you that because that's the typical. Lena is a an interesting organism. Because it has uh, chloroplasts, which you can see all in here. So it is photosynthetic. Um, it has a flagellum, which you can kind of see on that one. Um, these guys aren't moving very much. Uh, the flagellum actually is on the front, not on the back of the organism. And uh, they move through the, the water and uh, like I said, they do photosynthesis. You'll notice that toward the front, there's a reddish colored area. This is a light sensitive spot that if you're doing photosynthesis, it helps to be in the light. And so, so it's a light sensitive spot that helps them find the light areas where there's sunlight. Uh, and these are really common, uh, very, very common all, all through the United States, particularly in nutrient rich uh, water. Uh, you know, everybody has a farm yeah, and they have livestock in the, the puddles and that around where the livestock are. You'll find lots of these guys. Love that. All right, so those are the flagellates. And then we have the ciliates. Now, ciliates are all furry looking because they're covered, well, this one is, at any rate, covered with little tiny short projections called cilia. Um, they're free living. I think there is only one that is uh, a pathogen, which is, is very rare. Uh, they're really common everywhere. They move very quickly. They have all those little oars, essentially, to row around with. Um, and some of them are not completely covered with them. Uh, but they provide, it also directs, uh, it, the, the, it helps move water into their, what they call a gullet, which is their mouth. They, have a, they don't have a cell wall, but they have a flexible covering called a pellicle. It allows them to change their shape a little bit, uh, but they may basically maintain their shape, but it's flexible. Um, these are extremely uh, common. When you look at pond water in a lab, uh, if you see little tiny things that go zipping through so fast you can't see what they are, they're ciliates because they move very, very fast. Now, because they have all of these cilia, there has to be some kind of organization here. These are probably the most complex of the, uh, 
sort of zone of the Turkeys. Uh, underneath the bellicle, the ends of the cilia have to be are connected into a network underneath because if you've got cilia all over the surface, you better be coordinating their motion or you're not going to get anywhere. You got to make sure they're all beating the same direction or, or nothing's going to happen. It's like and, um, you know, three rows of oars on it, like the Greeks did, and, then, and not getting everybody coordinated with the row, you're not going to get anywhere. So the ciliates are, um, this is a paramecium, one of the most common. Uh, interesting that they have two kinds of nuclei. They have a macronucleus, which has to do with their day-to-day -day housekeeping functions. And then they have a micronucleus, which is used only when they are doing sexually, sexual reproduction. And two, uh, for instance, uh, of these guys, uh, uh, paramecia, will come right up next to each other. They'll put their oral grooves right up next to each other, and they will ex their micronucleus will go through meiosis, and they'll exchange nuclei. So they do as a type of sexual reproduction. Being a freshwater organism, they have the issue of too much water getting into the cell constantly because they're by osmosis and they have a, what's called a contractile vacuole to uh, get rid of that. So this, uh, these are paramecia. You kind of make out the cilia along the edge, but they're covering the whole thing. And what they do is they're pushing water down into this groove here. And you can see it kind of coming down, and what they're doing is absorbing any little heat particles that are there. Often what they do with these when they want to show it is they put uh, little particles of dye in there so that you can actually see what, what they're doing. Uh, you see how the, the outer edge is flexible, but they maintain their shape. Another look at it. Here you can see, here's the gullet, or the ear, it's forming little food vacuums and put all of these out. A lot of pictures of these. Again, gullet area, it's feeding. I don't know if they're going to show the contractile vacuum or not. But anyway, that's that's a uh, one of the ciliates. Now, um, there are some uh, uh, ciliates because they can move so fast. There, is a, there are a number of ciliates that actually hunt other uh, proteins. One's called didinium. It has two rings of cilia around it, and what it, it kind of moves through the water. It's got a, a tip on it. When it finds something, it actually like harpoons another cell, pulls it in, and swallows it. Uh, they feed on these uh, paramecia. And actually, it's interesting because the didinium is actually slightly smaller than the paramecium, but they managed to cram all that in there. Okay, the third, the fourth group of uh, protozoans are the apicomplexes. Um, these are all parasites. All of them are parasites. They're given this name because at one end of the cell, they have this complex at one end called the apical complex, and that's where the name comes from. Uh, these are what allow them to attach to their host cell. The two major ones that we uh, talk about are plasmodium. Uh, plasmodium is the organism that causes malaria. Very common in many parts of the world still. Uh, 
Um, there are about four different species of Plasmodium. Each causes a slightly different variant of, of malaria. They are all treatable, but again, uh, they're mosquito transmitted and that you don't get immunity from them. Okay, so you can get it again. Some people live for quite a long time with malaria, but it will eventually be fatal if, you, if not treated. Toxoplasma gondii. This is one that you, most of you, uh, how many people in here have cats? A few, okay. If you have cats, you've probably been exposed to this. Um, it lives in the intestinal tracts of cats. Uh, and uh, it produces, this is a, uh, it, it lives as a viable cell there, but it produces cysts, which go out in the feces of the cat. When you clean a litter box, when it's all dried up and there's all that dust flight, Okay, you might inhale one of those cysts, and then you could get toxoplasmosis. Now, for normal, healthy individuals, you'll never know because your immune system will kill it so fast that it'll never, it really, you'll never cause a problem. Okay, but if you are pregnant, it is a problem because it has been known to cross the placenta and cause birth defects and sometimes uh, miscarriages. So. Uh, Women who are pregnant, particularly in the first trimester, should not be cleaning litter boxes. Okay, that's a tough way to get out of cleaning the litter box, I know, but that shouldn't be doing that. Uh, because, it, it, you, you know, it doesn't mean your cat has them, but it might, and it's really common. Fortunately, it doesn't bother the rail. Probably, if we were to test people in here for uh, antibodies to this, probably 80% of the class would have them. This means you've been exposed to it and... Just, just another thing your immune system protected you from and you didn't know, and, and as long as you didn't get sick, who cares? I mean, that's what your immune system is there for. Okay? We only really notice it when it doesn't react fast enough or when it just doesn't react well to what it is. So, these are all parasites. Everything in this group is a parasite. Oh, we have a few more minutes. Okay. Now, also heterotrophic, because they feed on other living things, although in this case most of them are dead, but not all of them, are uh, fungal-like proteins. Uh, and they're called that because originally they were thought to resemble fungi when you looked at them in the microscope. Um, it's been since decided that they are not fungi. They are mostly decomposers. And in this group, we also have slime molds. And in the next, uh, I won't have time today, but in the next class, I have a, a TED talk saying about the slime molds that you might find. Yeah, a very interesting organism. Okay, so this is a, you see how you can see looking at this, it has a little bit of a fungal appearance to it. Um, digest and absorb nutrients. They can do both asexual and sexual reproduction. They form a large egg cell, and that's called an oogonium, which is where the name oogonium comes from. In addition, the male, or excuse me, the female gamete, the egg, is flagellated, which is very unusual. That's almost never found in, in organisms. So they're really quite different. Um, they are mostly found in water. If you've ever had fish, tropical fish, and they got the, the fin rot, the fungus on them, uh, or a fish died and didn't get it out within a day. It's covered in white fuzzy stuff. It's often these guys. Uh, that's what they're doing. They're decomposing stuff. Sometimes, however, decomposers, they don't always wait until you're dead. They just, you know, kind of like vultures that are waiting for the guy crawling through the desert to die. You've know, seen that old cartoon, two of them sitting out of cactus, and one of them tells the other one, Patients, hell, I'm going to kill something. That's, you know, fortunately for us, we have a lot of vultures around here. I mean, if you just have to look up in the sky almost any any day, you'll see them circling. They're really useful because they get rid of dead animals. You, you want to keep those guys around. Or if you go over to, uh, where is it, over on uh, Merrimack Trail near 2nd Street, there's a food lion over there and there's a big water tower. On a, on a sunny morning, you'll see they're all lined up on the railing of that tower with their wings spread out, warming themselves. A whole bunch. I mean, you might see 15, 20, 25 of them up there. Really common around here. 
Okay, so here's a look at what it does. This is the, the thin rod. Uh, here's an insect that died and it's uh, being decomposed. Uh, now, this particular one is a problem because this is what caused the great Irish potato famine, which in your history courses somewhere you probably have heard about. Um, literally, hundreds of thousands of people died. The, the potato crop failed. It was the main staple food of the, the lower classes, and, and it failed, and people starved to death. It initiated a mass migration. Uh, many of the uh, Irish came to the United States back at that time, particularly up in New England. Uh, if you go up there now, there are a lot of uh, Irish ancestry, people of Irish ancestry, uh, and even also in Virginia. Uh, although that was, I don't know if that was related to the potato family. Uh, my wife's maiden name is Riley, and there have been Rileys over in Gloucester and uh, Matthews since this late 1600s. Uh, you know, so they've been here a long time. But at any rate, um, this has economic impacts, it has health impacts, it's really a, a, a nasty pathogen. Uh, the only way you can really stop it is you have to find uh, strains of potato that are resistant to it, uh, which has generally been done now, but uh, it caused that. There's also another variety of it that causes what's called sudden oak death. This has been happening in California. Uh, oak trees get these oozing black sores like on the, on the trunks, and the next year they don't put out any leaves and they die. It's that fast. For a tree to die that fast, it's very unusual. Uh, and uh, it was, came to the United States from Asia, and it's causing problems. Water molds, basically. Okay, and then we have the slime molds. Now, you, you hear the name slime mold, and you think, well, this is not something I really want to know much about. These are very interesting organisms. They have very complex life cycles. Like I said, I have a TED Talk, so I'll show you next time. Uh, they're related to amoebas. They're very common in fresh water, damp soil, rotting vegetation. So I have never been anywhere in my life where there has been so much mulch put out down on everything out there. Rotting vegetation, they love it, okay? In the spring, when uh, late spring, occasionally you'll see a little area that's kind of crusty and yellowish or whitish on top of uh, mulch. That's one of these going through its reproductive cycle. Uh, they're extremely common. They feed mostly on bacteria. They're not harmful in any way. Uh, very, very interesting organism. And, and what makes them, they're studied quite a lot because this particular group here, there's two groups of them, it produces spores, and the spores germinate into single-cell amoeba-like organisms. And these little amoeba-like organisms roam through the rotting vegetation where it's damp, eating bacteria, Okay. And when the conditions are good for them, at some point later, a chemical signal is initiated, and we don't really know who starts it or how, and it causes all these individual little amoeboid cells to gradually come together and make one large multinucleate, what's referred to as a slug. Basically, it moves like, like a blob, okay? Only it's... Uh, it's not microscopic, it's, it's, it's big enough to see. And they will move until they are in the light, and then they'll send up a stalk. <clears throat> and a few of the cells up at the top of the stalk will go through meiosis and produce spores, and then they'll uh, start another generation. Now, these have been studied quite a bit. We'd like to understand how do they all find each other? You know, how do these individual little cells manage to all find each other out there? And then how is it decided which cells are going to be part of the base and the stalk? Because they're just going to die. They don't get to contribute to the reproductive, you know, pass their genes on. How is it determined which ones get, is it just because of where they are? What, what is the determination that some of them get to pass their genes on and others don't? They're easy to work with, very, very easy to work with. And like I said, they're very common around here. Uh, have a, And these are just some of the uh, images of the life cycle. So this is the slug starting to form the stalk. 
here's the stock with the capsule forming. And right up here, there'll be some cells up here that will form these spores. And, and those are the ones whose DNA gets passed on to the next generation. The rest of them simply die. Now, there are also um, plasmodial slime molds um, besides these. And these are the ones that leave the big splotches on, on the mulch usually. Uh, they ha have multiple nuclei but they're in a single membrane. Uh, they move rotting wood, okay, and mulch. That's what mulch is, is rotting wood product. Uh, and when the food gets scarce, then they produce spores. And this is what they look like, okay? This is one of the common ones around here. Uh, sometimes they're white, sometimes they're yellow. Uh, that particular one is referred to as the dog vomit one, because if you've had a dog that, you know, they, they vomit up that yellow gunk, you know, you know, I don't know if you've ever had a dog, but they, they go out and they eat junk and then they, they throw up. That's what dogs do. Uh, I don't know why. Um, but that's what referred to that. But these are all the, the what are called fruiting vines, the reproductive structures of these slime molds. So the, these are very common here in Virginia. Uh, the weather's conducive. We have, normally we get a fair amount of rain. We've got lots of woods and lots of leaves come down that are a place that they can feed. And then of course there's this uh, kind of, I don't know, it seems that I've just never seen so much mulch in my life <laughs> as I was around here. Uh, but that's ideal habitat for them. And, and so they, they live in those areas. Uh, you just anywhere where you are used to seeing a lot of mulch, but later in the spring, start looking for some of this stuff. You'll, you'll see it eventually. Be, they're, they're pretty common. And again, they're harmless. They're not doing anything but feeding on bacteria that are down in that rotting material. Again, that's what they do. Um, if you have a food source, somebody's going to take advantage and going to eat it. That's how life works. Okay, we'll stop there. I'll show you the little video on the slime molds next class, and then we'll do the, uh, the autotrophs, the, the algae, the plant-like guys.